Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a full-service ad agency that can work with you on your website development, your branding, your logo, your interactive and digital media, whatever it takes to take your company to the next level. So look them up, www.bluefish.com, that's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode, all about Chile. We actually drink a bottle of the iconic Clo Apalta, uh, 2004 vintage. We talk about phylloxera, we talk about the region, and a ton of other stuff. So hope you enjoyed today's episode. Dude, I, so I, I pulled a, I pulled this cork out with this. What do you call this device? I don't know. Pitchfork? Pitchfork? <laughs> no, it actually has an actual uh, name. A cork stabber? <laughs> Dude, it's like the one device that I've wanted for quite a while because we open a lot of older bottles. Like, I'm surprised Dustin doesn't just carry one of those with him at all times. I was really, ha- I, honestly, I was like nervous to stick it in there. <laughs> uh, phrasing. And, uh. But like once I got the hang of it, this is such a better device than a corkscrew almost because the cork came out perfectly and with ease. I think that those work better with real corks. I don't think they work well with synthetics. Well, they're um, definitely not going to re- work well with screw tops. So oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, I, I could I could definitely say that because you had to be a little like spongy for this device to work. But this thing's cool. I got pictures of it, so I'm going to put it up. Like there's got it. There is a real name for it. Yeah. There's a lot of mold on the top of this cork, too, which is weird because it's not anywhere on the cork, so it's clearly something else. So today, this is really fun. We're going to do Chilean wines. Yay. It's <laughs> funny. Is they, they call it, Actually, I remember seeing this. They said uh, Aso. Aso. <laughs> but there's, there's an actual name for it. What are we talking about? You're the little... That thing. The, oh, the, the, the cork device? The yeah, cork stabber? It says Aso wine opener. Ah, uh, so well, literally says I. I yeah, no, on the bottom, all also, right. Also, winemaker, cool, or wine opener. Open your bottle of wine without ruining your cork. Yeah. Oh, there's instructions on the back. There they are. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty stick, stick in and twist. Yeah. But when you have an old bottle, I mean, how many how many corks we've broken over the years? I mean, how many wine parties? It's so frustrating when you snap a cork in half too, and then you got to go digging that like bottom piece out. <laughs> I think we went through probably twenty four coffee filters at the at the. 21 and over party, filtering the wine. Because yeah. every cork we just destroyed. It's broke. I mean, a lot of people don't store it properly. Plus, and especially after 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, a wine that's laid down for five years, the cork's not going to be super brittle. But after you lay it down for another 10 more, it's going to become more and more dried out. Plus, yeah. we're in Arizona. Dude, it's always dry here. The only day it's humid is if it rains and then it immediately evaporates out. And, and even though it's in my wine cooler, it's still probably drying out those corks. I mean, if your wine is kept in a cave in France and you know it's nice and humid in there, you probably don't have very many problems with that. You probably pull a cork out and it's nice and spongy still. Yeah. Well, I'd say that at least like most wine coolers, I think now kind of have like, at least I notice it in mine. There's always water on the back of it, so it kind of like at least stays humid in there. My old one I used to have, I used to stick a jar of water into it. So that way, you know, it stayed humid in there. Because I'd go into it and it would all be gone like after a week. But then I'd, like the, the bottles would basically be covered in, you know, like water at that point, kind of. It's, I think my Euro Cave has like a humidity control on it. Um, uh, some yeah. of the more higher end wine coolers probably have something to control that more. Yeah. I mean, I have my cooler in back is a really nice cooler. I mean, that's a really nice cooler, but I don't, it's not humidity control. You're talking about the big one or the, Euro my, the big, the big one. Yeah. Like the big ones, dual zone, like really accurate. I mean, no vibration. I mean, it's a nice cooler. 
Yeah. But there's no humidity control. Yeah. That might be one where like you stick some like a little like like the one I had like I'm not kidding it came with two trays that were meant for upper and bottom for you to actually physically put water into it kind of treat it like a humidor like those humidors you got to put the gel in uh, into the thing that you know keeps your cigars nice and fresh but otherwise then, you got to respunge it and do a whole bunch of other work but then again you do that and you're risking maybe some mold and growing in it I have mold growing in the bottom of my cellar I have no idea how to get it out of the bottom of there and it's growing on a couple of my bottles like I've got an opus one bottle that has mold spots all over it now I'm not worried that it's going to get into the wine but the bottle looks like ass. We've had a number of bottles like that. Port wines get that way. It's funny. That's the one that did it. It was a port bottle because I know where it came from. It came from this real old port bottle because it's. I got the bottle and it had it on it, and now my fridge has it kind of spread. Now, it's not every bottle either, which is crazy. It's only this one Opus bottle, and uh, a couple of my uh, Barolo bottles have it actually physically on the bottle. Like I can grab the bottle, and it kind of dusts off. See, that's why I'm never worried about it. I mean, when we were at Argiano, like Dude, they store these things in, in caves. In caves, there's mold. There's I've seen mushrooms in caves before. When we walked into the Argiano cave, somebody looked at me and said, "Don't touch the wall; you'll get a disease." I mean, there was like mold on the walls. There was mold on every bottle. The bottles literally were fuzzy. Like it was crazy. I don't think I've ever been in a cellar that was as nasty, but also as awesome as Argiano's. Now, I know they've cleaned it out. I know they've pressure washed it. I know they've done a lot since to kind of clean it up. But it was really cool to walk over to a stack of wine. It was We went to a stack of 1980 Argianos, and you could barely see them underneath all that fuzz. You've seen those pictures where, yeah, they have them all stacked up in those uh, in like their slots, and they're just covered in just... It looks like black mold, but it's clearly not. It's, it's, it's pretty much black mold. It's pretty much black mold. <laughs> it's weird, though, because I've heard them always be like, oh, the cellar is alive. You know, this has something to do. But I'm like, the bottle's corked. So, you know, what exactly is it doing? Is it just keeping it, you know, dank and humid? I, I just... I think it's really cool. Obviously, there's something really awesome to it. You know, it's like your own little living environment basically at that point when you walk into a cellar and it's all pristine and perfectly kept it's nice it's it's you know it's got that feeling oh this is pretty but when you go into those grungy old caves there's something nostalgic about it that's it's true because there's a lot in napa that i've been lucky enough to go into and it's pristine you know the cement is it looks like it's freshly clean the walls are nice there's no spider webs there's nothing the barrels go down the lights are there but I went to one in France, and it, I'm not kidding, man. It, it looked like nobody had been down there for hundreds and hundreds of years. It looked like it was straight out of Game of Thrones. Like, I was expecting tombs down in this thing. And it was it was so unique. There was no lights. You had to have, like, a candle, and they only had so much amount of time for you to, like, have this candle lit because they don't want to mess with the oxygen levels wow. down there. I was like, holy crap, man. But it was so cool. And it is, it's, it's weird when you're in pitch black, no light. Nothing. It is just dark, but the smell is so cool. The uh, San Leonardo Winery, the one that we've drank up in Napa together. That yeah, was, yeah, yeah. So they play some crazy like monk chanting music, like <laughs> in their in their barrel room. So the wines that are aging, because they release their wines very late. They their current so about ten years or something. Their current vintage is like six or seven years aged already by the time it comes out. But when you walk into the cellar, literally you hear like this like monk chant just hemming to the barrels and they feel that it keeps the the wine happy while it's aging. That's crazy. Those little things. Hey, you know what? It's not going to make it worse. 
right? That's true. You're right. It's really not going to make anything worse. I would like to see an experiment at some point where somebody has, all right, this room was country, this music was rock, this was <laughs> Beethoven, and this one is EDM, and this one's rap. And just, you know, I don't know. It's it's gimmicky and stupid, but maybe. Who knows? I mean, I've seen people do it where they're, they're dropping wine at the bottom of the ocean. Ardbeg sends scotch into space. Like, you know, it's... There obviously there's going to have an impact on it, but there's a gimmicky aspect to it, which is kind of fun because you could be like, oh, hey, country fans, look at this Cabernet we did. This was aged on, you know, two years of French oak, three years in bottle and six years of Toby Keith. Enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) There was... (laughs) <laughs> there, there's a wine shop I remember finding in a in Brooklyn once that their wine shop was organized instead of by varietal, it was organized by musical tastes. Oh. So they had they had a progressive rock section, they had a country section, they had like that is interesting. So so like the smooth jazz section was kind of chill, mellow wines, where like the heavy metal, like the rock and roll sections were definitely more in your face. Na- Napa Cab's got to be full on like rap because it, it's just bass is just wood. <laughs> but I thought it was really cool. So you go over to like the the hard rock section, and each and every wine that was in there was actually paired with a song. So it was like, this is Led Zeppelin, oh, cool. Stairway to Heaven. This is ACDC, you know. So, so dude, that'd be perfect, because Stairway to Heaven is a perfect example of a wine where it starts off like real slow and then builds and then boom, blows up and has this amazing ending. I always thought that was one of the coolest ideas for a wine shop, because it was just so different. Everything's organized around here the same way. I mean, it's... Cab... Yeah, it, it's Pinot, half your and then French and then Italy. Yeah, half your shop is one or- shelf of port. Yeah, half your shop is organized by varietal. The other half the shop's organized by country, and that's it. It's the same shit. We should organize if we have a shop by uh, your mood. So, did you just deal with your kids? Did you just have an amazing day? Did you get a promotion? This is the divorce section. <laughs> the divorce section. All Are high you pissed alcohol. at your husband? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is yeah. <laughs> It's just celebrations for everything. It's it's the all around section champagne to be in everything. Divorce, champagne, promotion, champagne. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, you could pretty much have champagne with everything. You could have champagne with everything. Did you have a baby? Champagne. <laughs> oh man, uncle or relative just passed away. Champagne that you hated. So where do you put Chilean wines in that section? Well, <laughs> this is actually a question I've had with many shop owners because they often will have an Argentina section a Chile section and a French section. But what if I sell them a Chilean cab? Does that cab go in the cab section or the Chile section? So I, so here's something crazy. Uh, so I was at AZ wines today, obviously. And we had uh, Melissa from Vino 750 came in to try new wines for Todd and I, and she brought in a Chilean Bordeaux wine, um, from a guy who makes it called Vic. It's V I K. It might be pronounced Vic if I remember. And he spent millions of dollars finding the right soil, the right weather, the right slope to do Bordeaux blends. Uh, so Merlot, Cab, Cap Franc, Malbec, and Carmenere. And um, she poured me his, uh, I guess it would be like your house blend, like not what you're, you know, you're highlighting your most, but basically what you give for everybody else. It was unbelievable. It was outstanding. And it changed my entire opinion of what you can do in Chile. In Chile. And from what we had up at Wine Warehouse, the Chilean wine we sold was just a couple Carmenere's and like three Pinot Noirs and a random white. So we had five wines. And honestly, I was a fan of none of them. You know, they were really herby. They had that green note was so prevalent. This is the first time right now after I opened this bottle that we're about to talk about and poured it, the nose blew me away. And I think with how the country is designed, with the weather that it has, 
And from longitude to latitude, the country has a million different possibilities. And it's all just a matter of who found what and is going to strike gold. I imagine it's probably like 10% of it is probably amazing. It can it can fight with uh, French wines and California wines. And the rest of it's probably like most things, just garbage. I, yes. So just, I think, I think Chilean wines, you have to know what you want. And you have to know the producer. You've really got to know what you're getting. I think it's not something you can just swing a bat at. Like you could be opening up a store and get any Napa cab and it's going to be, you know, similar-ish and it's going to be fine. You're not going to strike out on Napa cab. Chilean wines, you miss. You're going to have a really bad wine. Yeah. Well, bad to you, bad to me. True. It's, it's all personal. It's, it's all personal opinion there. The problem I have sometimes with Chile is that they have no middle class. They don't have a lot of middle class. They have a lot of very affordable, cheap wines. Yeah. They have a couple that are very iconic, unbelievable collector wines that people put in their cellars. They've had wines that have been on the Spectator Top 100 number one. I mean, they've gotten some amazing... They've had 100 pointers come out of Chile. But then again, the majority of the wines, to me, are going to be lower class. And you don't get a ton of that mid-tier stuff to me. Um, you feel like you got to be in Chile to get the high-end stuff because it's not going to make it up here into America? No, they export. They're, they're one of the biggest exporters in the world. They're the fifth largest exporter of wine in the world. Yeah, it was, I was reading something about that, and they were like number three to America for a while, and now they're number five to us or something. But it is it, it just maybe just because where we live, uh, I almost see none of it anywhere. Well, a lot of those South American countries also don't allow imports or it's so limited i know argentina is that way you can't get wines in argentina you have to buy them in argentina or bring them in yourself Hmm. one of my friends is a big bordeaux fan has a piece of property down there and he has to buy bordeaux all over the world and bring it with him because he can't buy it in argentina they're all they're all about exports no imports no imports yeah okay i could see that you know and that's one of those things that you know we were talking about our wine is that a lot of these countries they want to send us their wine but they don't want to take our wine yeah. You know? Yeah, I can, I can I can see how frustrating that would be in some cases, especially with, you know, like let's say you're a, like I guess Mandavi would be a good example just because of how big they are, or um, a Clos de Bois. You know, they would probably want to export, but with how big America is, you know, do you even really need to? Because do you make enough volume for it to export? Because who cares if you're selling the one case of Joseph Phelps insignia to China? Like, that's cool. You moved your name brand. But do you really want to keep expanding and changing that profile versus, you know, these up and coming countries want to just get it out as much as possible and, and give com- it to everybody. But also coming from a salesman standpoint, it's a lot easier just to sell wine in your own country than to try and worry about getting it out and then the logistics of getting it out. If I'm going to spend 200 hours, I can make a big impact in America. 200 hours, I'm still jumping through hurdles trying to do international exports. True. So it's just a matter of ease. And if you could sell all your wine in America and not worry about exporting, why bother? Yeah, right. You know, I mean, a lot of our wineries don't really make enough wine, and they we can sell it all in America anyways. A lot of it doesn't even make it to the East Coast. That's true, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of culty little itty bitty guys making three, four, five hundred cases, and you have an allocation for it. Who cares that it ends up on a menu or something? Well, well, that's a big problem that a lot of the East Coast importers don't realize because a lot of the people that import wine into the United States, their wine lands on the East Coast, and they sell a ton of it on the East Coast, and then they try and ship it to the West Coast, and it doesn't sell as well. And they have a lot of problems selling wine on the West Coast compared to the East Coast. Why? We grow it on the West Coast. We already have our wines. The California producers are everywhere. You can get every California wine in California. <laughs> like, why would they necessarily buy imports? Whereas when you're in New York, 
You can't get every California wine. You in don't New York. have a wine growing region. You're closer to France probably than you are California. <laughs> just a, yeah, just about. I mean, it's a it's a six hour flight either way. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So yeah, it's a good point right there. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, what's funny is thinking about like last bottle and WTSO. Last bottles in Santa Rosa, and pretty much every time something comes up on there, it's I'd say seventy percent of the time California. WTSO is over in New Jersey. And almost everything they have is Italian or French before they have almost any California stuff on there. Well, you think about what they would have to do is they would have to order from California. They would have to ship it all the way across the country, which is going to cost them more. Yep. And then if somebody buys it in California, then they're they shipping ship it all the way right back. back. So, yeah. I mean, then by then, the wine's getting more and more expensive. I mean, and it's a price-conscious time for wine. I mean, you got to... Everybody wants to charge a bunch of money, but you want people to drink your product. So if you're going to charge $50, the average American isn't going to sit down and drink a $50 bottle on a Tuesday night. No, they're not. You know, people that buy those wines might lay them down and open them up a couple times a year. Like, but the average American that just wants to drink wine on a Monday, they want something $10, $12, $15. Some with a screw top that can open ease. I always say the magic number is under 20. It's really nice if you can get around the 10 to 15 range. I saw a stat, and I'm definitely going to overblow this a little bit. It was a few years back because I was trying to study some stuff for how we were setting up our tasting room. And it was basically along the lines of about 40% of most people spend their money on $8 and lower wine. And then after like the recession hit and popped back up, it then became like 50%, so it moved up. But about 90-something percent of all, all money spent on wine is below $15.99. Uh, a bottle and then they consider ultra premium above 1599 and that's not a lot i mean it's unbelievable the amount of money people spend lower than 16 bucks a bottle i actually i actually have wine.com's stats for wine sales in the united wow, states wow that's crazy you pull, literally pulled that out of a drawer <laughs> i did but i remember them talking about like the type of wines that sell and actually it's the middle class wines that don't sell well right now in america no and i say middle class cuz that middle price point that's just my term for it it's the, the cheap wines, the bulk wines sell very well. Yep. The high-end wines can sell very well, but you end up in a no-man's land sometimes when you're around 25 bucks. Yeah, it's especially because you're going up against some name brands that have been able to drop it into that middle-class area, and now you're fighting a name brand. We always say that when, like a restaurant, you know, if you go, if, if you're a salesman and you sell wine to a restaurant and they, it hits a price point where it's a buy-the-glass, it sells, or if it's on a reserve list for $100, it sells. But when you hit that middle price point where it's a cheap reserve wine or a super expensive by the glass, it doesn't always sell. It's at no man's land. You look really happy uh, trying this wine. I just took the first sip of it, uh, yeah. I'm, I've actually never had this wine. This is a wine that's one of the most iconic wines made in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to try it. The nose is so intriguing. It's got so many characteristics. And this is now, it's a 14-year-old version of it. So... Yeah, it's funny that you were talking about Wine Spectator's number one wine. This was actually Wine Spectator's number one wine, but it was the 2005 vintage, and we're drinking the 2004 vintage. So I'm going to try this. It's uh, Casa La Postale, La Postalle, because it's Spanish. So yeah, La Postalle. <laughs> and then uh, it's the Clo uh, Apalta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what they say is that it's 85% Carmenere Merlot. So they don't even say what Carmenere Merlot it is. They just say 85% Carmenere Merlot and then 15% Cabernet Sauvignon. Is it? Well, I'm wondering if in 2004 they still had not come up with the conclusion that Carmenere was Merlot 
or sorry, that the Merlot was Carmenere. So maybe that they were still in that in between. Whereas I wonder if current vintage of Cloopta says just Carmenere on it. So it um it was 1997, right around that time was when they figured out Carmenere was actually Merlot in Chile, or excuse me, vice versa. They thought. So in Chile, for the longest time, they thought they were growing Merlot in a lot of places, and it turned out they had Carmenere, because a lot of French people had obviously transported over their time, bringing plantings with them. And then with Phylloxera coming in and basically devastating it across Europe, the only place it really survived was out there. I was reading a thing where it said in America, there's only like 111, no, it's Italy. Italy only has 111 acres of it. America barely has a few hundred acres of it. France only has like 12 acres left of it, and it's only in two first uh, growth areas. And then Chile has like 17,000 plus hectares of it. <laughs> have you ever seen a vine affected by um, phylloxera? I have not. The only time I've ever seen a diseased plant was when it was the, that sharp, that was a sharpshooter, uh, that wing glass or that sharp glass. There's a term for it. That little bug that bites the vine and then it slowly rolls in over like four years and dies. What's funny is that... Never seen phylloxera. I, I've always called phylloxera a disease, but I know that it's not <laughs> it's actually... A it's, yeah, it's actually like an aphid. Um, it's a bug essentially that eats your roots Yeah, and it'll travel on your shoes. It goes vineyard to vineyard. There was a vineyard we were at in Oregon that when we told him that we had visited another winery that day, we had to put on like rubber boots to walk his vineyards. He didn't let us, really? he didn't let us walk on his property like with our shoes, like without being covered up because he was worried we would bring phylloxera from another vineyard to his. Cause he's on, he's pre phylloxera. He has uh, original rootstock. In Oregon. Interesting. So his roots went so deep. It went deeper than the phylloxera that he has. He has some, but since the roots go so deep, it doesn't really affect him. But all his younger plants could possibly uh, be affected. Yeah. But he doesn't want stuff from his neighbors. So we had to have like little rubber booties to like walk around the vineyards. It's amazing that one little bug almost wiped out an entire industry. And all it took was American rootstock because they were so used to it. And, you know, talk about, you know, it's ironic that. People from Europe came over here and devastated like a lot of what we had here with disease and stuff. And then they brought back something that almost wiped out all their vineyards in Europe. Do you know who they blame for it? Uh, let me guess. The Americans? Well, it wasn't. It, it was. A, They're playing the English? Yeah. No, it was actually a winery in America where a guy had gone over in the uh, 1800s to grab clippings from Europe. And they don't know for sure it was him, but he's, Crew, the, he's the guy maybe? that they blame. It's the guy who founded Buena Vista Winery. Oh, the first one, it really. Yeah, so he had gone over and grabbed like 350 clippings from through Europe. And it was right after that is when phylloxera just started devastating Europe. And they didn't know what to do. I mean, it was... Yeah, it's amazing because it was a Texas rootstock that saved everything. Was it Was it Texas? I, I, thought, not, it, I thought it was like Pacific Northwest, but I'm, that, I'm not a scientist. So. I, I thought it was... Either way, it's American rootstock yeah. is what it came down to. Crazy thing is Chile's the, I think, one of the last places on earth that has never had it and not saying like there's not like islands or something of a country but you know obviously after a certain elevation phylloxera will die or certain types of soil they can't survive in but chile has had no problems with it like whatsoever they're all original rootstock everything it's, it's one of the only places in the world that has no phylloxera or it's crazy it's it's crazy because everywhere you go in the world even you go over to on the other side of the andes go over to argentina they got it and, and they got it but Chile doesn't. I mean, France, Spain, Italy, Croatia, America. I was. Just, I, I, I think well, it's a, you know born in America. It's clearly how the rootstock survived out here but, for the most part. Yeah, but I mean, and even the the rootstock that we thought was for the most part immune to it, 
is now being affected. There's actually now a another type of phylloxera that is now attacking the rootstock that we thought was mostly resistant. See, that's crazy. I always wonder that. Like, I was I always wondered if there's going to be like the super phylloxera, like how we think of superbugs when uh, we take antibiotics, and eventually like a real bacteria will get out, like that MRSA. I was wondering if one day, you know, we kill all these things or eventually they just adapt and all of a sudden that one bug is out there reproducing and it just devastates everything. Like, what are we going to do then? Like, that's crazy because the only thing that will be able to survive is real high elevation or very specific types of soil. So France, like in like the 1900, put a $1 million bounty on anybody that can come up with a cure for phylloxera. And the people who actually discovered and started putting into effect the the, uh, American rootstock into France wanted to claim the prize and they wouldn't give it to him because they said, you didn't cure it. You just found a preventative measure, but Damn. you didn't cure it. And they, they never paid him. A weak ass thing. <laughs> That's the most French thing I've heard today. Yeah, it's crazy, right? But it's true. They didn't cure it. There's no, there is to this day, no yeah, cure Yeah, how do we not have an ability to kill a bug? Like obviously you don't want to spray pesticides and stuff, but I don't know. It's just, it's weird. A- every great superhero has a villain. No, yeah. I mean, really. It's, just, it's literally a David versus Goliath thing here. I mean, really, that's what it is. I mean, you, you I, I just feel you can't have anything just perfect. And wine can, is, is really one of the most perfect things on the planet. You have to have something that. Well, it's like Brett. Like, Brett gets into your winery. Your winery's going to have serious problems. <laughs> but I like Brett. Yeah, well, at the littlest amount. <laughs> I don't know. I've had some pretty gnarly bready wines. You like you like horse fart in your wine? I love petting zoo. <laughs> it reminds me of 4-H and like raising a uh, cow yeah. and the, the farms in upstate New York. See, I never grew up around farms, therefore I hate it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love petting zoo. I could pick out individual animals when I smell that <laughs> I'm Like This is a little bit of like... That's what? a very weird, unique trait. Mm, this smells <laughs> like a goat. Mm, this smells like a sheep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Imagine like chickens and turkeys running around now. So what do you think of this wine? I haven't actually even tried it yet. The nose was so intriguing to me when I first smelled it because it's got depth. You know, sometimes when you smell a wine, you have to search for the nose. You have to stick your whole head in. You're taking deep breaths. You're like, and you're trying to get one little thing. Whereas I smelled this and it just jumped up, grabbed me, slapped me and pulled me in the glass. Yeah. I mean, there's so much on the nose of this. That this is one of those noses when you smell it, there's nothing very distinct about it. And you're like, holy crap, there is so much to this. And it honestly surprised me. I had no idea what this wine was, by the way. This is another wine I got from a collection and it was just sitting in there. And I looked it up one day and it was like, yeah, considered one of the top wines out of Chile. And I was like, what? All right. Well, I'll save one of these because I had another one and I off that off to somebody to try so it's 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 unfortunate that chile has a bad reputation but they did it to themselves well they also have one hell of a history i mean realistically i know their wine industry has been around for a long time um they're single-handedly the reason peru's wine industry basically died you know back in the day when they were part of spain the spaniards were you know running chile and they basically said hey you have to buy all of our wine from us considering because chile used to buy everything from peru when there were grapes there and therefore chile started buying everything from spain and argentina peru with all their extra grapes started making pisco because they had nothing else to do so at least we have pisco for that but i mean it wasn't until probably the 80s 90s when they really came about started making you know like commercialized wine to get out into the market, even though it's been around for a long time. Yeah, and then the communists basically shot that in the foot by stealing all the money and taxing they, the hell out of were them. Were they communists? Because it was Pinochet was the dictator that yeah. took over. Well, well dictatorship. So. Yeah, dictatorship was the right, yeah. Because even though it's not really communist, like I, I love like, you know, we have communism and Democrat and all stuff, but in the end, if you have a dictator taking over, it doesn't matter what flag you have or what government you think you have. Well, they just... 
they taxed the wines too much. Once they realized it was a global economy, they just came in and taxed them to the point where they all died. And two thirds of the vineyards in Chile just disappeared, like because they couldn't afford it. You know, you yeah. When the government's taking all your money, you're like, I'll go plant something else. And most of the people at that point went and planted more moved. <laughs> well, they planted stone fruit. Two yeah. two thirds of the vineyards. Like it was like mid eighties, two thirds of all the vineyards were just uprooted and they put down stone fruits. So peaches, nectarines, stuff like that. Is that what we consider stone fruit? Yeah. Anything with a pit. Oh, is that okay? Really? That's it's, what you consider. So like would avocado technically be something like that? Or should I just say something stupid? Like, you know, I, it's a vegetable. <laughs> you're right. It's probably a vegetable, but I'm not, I don't know. To be honest, I, I, I don't, don't know how that works. I don't know that. So because doesn't avocado come off of a tree. You're going down a, you're asking some random questions to yeah. someone who's a wine guy. I am not. You know what's funny? It's I'm not an people, avocado guy. People who are listening, <laughs> half of them just went, shit, is that a vegetable or a fruit? Uh, yeah, they're all Googling it right now. <laughs> Everybody's Googling it. <laughs> what an idiot. Well, that, that was the whole thing with tomatoes. Half the people think I'm stupid and the other half are like, wait, what? No, it's actually got me thinking now too because that was the one random thing. You're like, what about avocado? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so wait, you have peaches, nectarines. What else has a pit in it? Apricots? Uh, plums. Plums. It's it, yeah, those it's the stone fruit. That's that's the term for those huh. type of. I never knew that. All right, that's always good because every time people say stone fruit, I'm like, what is that? And they're like, oh, well, peaches. This I'm like, oh, okay. So I, now I say it, but only say it because that's what yeah. somebody else would used to say. I instantly think peaches and nectarines. That okay. that kind of quality or that type of flavor is a stone fruit to me. Very cool. Just something with a pit. Yeah. Well, definitely not what this wine smells like. <laughs> nope. So when I first smelled this, by the way, I thought your glass was dirty in a dusty way. Like uh, after after we get storm uh, dust storms out here, like haboobs, there's a dustiness in the air, and you could it's like tannin for your nose. Like there's that grimy kind of dusty smell, but it's just the wine. It was so cigar box dusty that when it came out, that's that was kind of the first thing that hit my nose was like the cigar box dustiness to it. And I mean, and then the fruit like peaked out a little bit. Plus, we opened this, we didn't decant it, we poured it nope. in a glass and started. Going through it. And I, I actually going I, from A to B. I really enjoy the way we open a bottle and, and enjoy it on the show and talk about it as it opens up instead of just going right from, you know, the Decanting first. Decanting an hour before. Yeah, because I want to see how this wine changes. I Like I said, I like a little foreplay. I don't want to <laughs> go right from A to D. Like, let's get a little B and C in the middle too. Yeah. Like, let's see how this changes and opens. And plus, with the podcast, we can kind of see how this wine progresses over the next hour of the show. So. Something about Chile that's really interesting, too, is that, you know, once the, the taxation took over and they started, you know, replanting and they got out of control, the price in Chile dropped to nothing. Literally in 1985, I looked this up, the price of wine in Chile was five cents a liter. Holy crap balls. Five Where's cents. Where's that Italian guy with the gas jugs at that point, man? Five <laughs> cents a liter. Can't imagine. That probably was pretty awful wine, though. But still, but that it, that's party the, for a week for a dollar. That's the reason why by nineteen ninety, two thirds of all the vineyards were gone, and they were basically growing stone fruits because you could make more money that way. You know. You know, it's interesting because I think about places like uh, Argentina has Malbec as their big export for the world. You know, um, I was going to say some places in Europe, but they're so different all over the place. I wonder, like. Australia has Shiraz, you know, you think of New Zealand, you mostly think of Saw Blanc before you do Pinot Noir. Chile, a lot of people think Carmenere, but by itself, there's some amazing Bordeaux blends and Pinot Noir that's coming out of there. Well, it, it really is one of the craziest countries for diversity of what you can do between the Pacific Ocean and the Andes being, I mean, what's the thickest part of 
of Chile, maybe 90 miles at most. Yeah, it's 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 like Scottsdale. Yeah, it's as <laughs> just, wide as Scottsdale. You could probably be up in the Andes and see the Pacific Ocean <laughs> on the horizon. Super thin and super long. <laughs> so the the Chilean wine industry is just so unique, though, as far as like what they put out and the qualities. Um, because of the temperature there, to be honest, the whites to me for years were always the most stunning. Even though the reds are the most drank, yeah. the reds are the ones that people know of. It's the whites to me that have always just been unbelievable because it's the the hot days and the cool nights allows acid to develop in those wines. Think of all the cold weather or cold air coming off the Andes too. So they have a lot of super racy uh, Sauvignon Blancs, and their Chardonnays develop great acid, and yeah. they don't over oak their Chardonnays usually. So you end up with a lot of unoaked Chardonnays that are just See, I like that racy and zippy and. Like the, the problem I've run into with Chile is the overproduction of the grapes. The way they plant, since they don't use grafting or they're, because there's no phylloxera, they're able to just plant vines. And without grafting, the vines actually will grow faster and they can grow more, they can put them tighter together. Because mm. literally, you could just, you could. So there's not a lot of spacing and. You can overproduce. Uh. And, and that's been a big problem with Chile is overproduction. Plus, a lot of the vineyards are on the sides of mountains, and they're not easy to get to. So, yeah. so, so pruning them and keeping the the green trimmed back doesn't always happen. That's why you get that green characteristic. That's often one in your wines. thing that I never liked about Chilean wines that that we were trying a lot for wine warehouses. When people brought most of them, and I do mean most of them, like ninety percent most of them, there was that green note, that heavy herbaceous jalapeno and green bell pepper, and it wasn't light. It was there. It was in your face most of the time. And I always attributed to they were underripe on most of their characteristic when uh, when they were letting these things grow and they were just picking real quick and growing just because you know I, I know we have the UC Davis school out here and there's Bordeaux and Turin and a few other places like is there like a main you know school like is there anybody who's down there that you're like holy crap you know um, like I know Paul Hobbs is down in Argentina and Lafitte uh, Rothschild is in Argentina and even in America a little bit is there anybody big in Chile that's the, the, helping out the big Bordeaux houses big Bordeaux have, houses big, are in there well what happened was when Phylloxera hit France so hard a lot of those people packed up and moved to Chile and Argentina I mean, 95% of the people in Chile and Argentina are European settlers. That's why they have all the European varietals. Yeah. When they all thought that their vineyards were destroyed and gone and finished, they just packed up clippings and they went to Argentina and Chile. And plus, with no phylloxera, that's ideal. Imagine being a producer that you just lost everything, but you found a place in the world where you could grow and it's tropical and it's nice and the weather's great. and you could... uh, The weather there's got to be so consistent. It's got be... to be just like California, just sun. Nice, cool fog during times of the day. I bet it's a foggy country, man. From top to where almost they're almost by the equator, and they're almost down by the South Pole. <laughs> well, it's it's a lot of fluctuation, yeah, because it's so yeah. long. It's so long and narrow. It's got probably every type of climate out there. Yeah, and it's every valley, nook, and cranny that whole country. I mean, it's just a tectonic plate that slammed into Argentina. <laughs> so another thing that's unique for people that are listening that a lot of people probably don't realize about South American wines or or Southern Hemisphere wines is that they come to market six months early. So, or maybe it's six months late. So, we're like the whites, bubbles, stuff like that, rosés. We get those; they'll show up to market when we're picking our wines. Yeah. So, when we're picking our 2019s, the 2019s from Southern Hemisphere are actually landing. Yeah, they're in most of the cases they're probably even in barrels for their reds because their harvest season is February, March, April, basically. And they kind of got an advantage for the U.S. market coming from a salesman side of it is that. 
often we release our wines going into summer, and summer is not the best time in America to drink wine. People are at the beach. People are going out. You know, around much of the country, people are at the lakes. It's mm. not. You don't consider summer to be red wine season. Red wine season is usually once it starts to get a little colder out. So in America, when's our when's our releases? It's springtime. They're always spring releasing everything in spring. Yeah. In Argentina, you're releasing in fall, so they're releasing their their wines going into our winter months, so they have a little advantage there. Um, another thing, too, without having phylloxera, when they plant a vine, they can harvest it faster than we can here in America. Why is that? Because when you graft a vine, you have to add an extra year, typically, for the graft to take. Oh, uh, okay. So, so typically, when you plant a vine in America, you got about four years before you're producing a wine out of it. In, in Chile, it's three years, because you can knock a year off, because you, you're on original rootstock. You don't, you don't have to wait for the... It doesn't have to basically heal. Correct. Oh, very cool. So li- little things like that that they have advantages of the, over us here or because of the phylloxera. That's really awesome. That's that's such a cool little thing too. Like I, I'd like to... I definitely want to someday go down, take a trip and go to certain areas of it and just see what a an untamed vineyard looks like for the most part that's doing some really cool things. Like in my mind, I'm picturing bush vines almost right now in a weird way. Amongst like just not scattered, but you know, not rode with the Goye systems up and trimmed out nicely and everything. But just say there's like our field out there kind it, of a thing. It depends on the vineyards. It depends on the region, the area. They're all different. I mean, if you're going to like Casa La Postel, it's going to be very pristine, very well tamed. Yeah. Like you have a French producer who's a very prestigious French. The, the guy who actually makes this is a very prestigious Frenchman. Really? He's actually makes, I believe, a, a Grand Cru in France. So it's... Yeah, that must be the other thing too because uh, I'm going to read it. I'm going to come back to that in a second because his name is on here. But that's another thing speaking about the Southern Hemisphere is you can be a winemaker in France, fly down to Chile, make all the wine there for a couple months, go back home and get ready for harvest season and you're already done. You can literally fly two different ways because let's say you're getting ready for your grapes to be picked in um, July. So you're out there, you're looking at everything. And by the time you're done in December, as it's going to get ready to go into barrels and out of tanks and everything, well, harvest season is going to start moving into effect in the Southern hemisphere. So cool. All right, I'm done up here. Gotta go down to Chile and check out that time. You can work year round making wine. There's a name for those people. Like it's like the flying winemakers or something like that. I've heard that term. I'm not hundred percent sure what it was. So, so I think, I think you're right. I think you're yeah, flying winemaker. Because a lot of those guys, it happens a lot in yeah South America, Australia, Australia. There's actually a, a group of guys call themselves the flying winemakers in Australia that make wine elsewhere, and then during the off season they go to Australia to make wine. Yeah, you're right. By the way, it's the uh, it says on the back of the bottle the um, f- famous French enologist Michael Roland. Yeah, Mich- uh, Michel Roland. Michel Roland. Mi- Michel Roland. And he, he, <laughs> Michael he, Roland. <laughs> that, 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 Sorry, that, Michael Roland. M- Michael Roland is like a. <laughs> A pitcher for the Mariners, probably. I was gonna say it sounds almost like a movie producer too, <laughs> <laughs> like a director name or something like that. Directed yep. by Michael Rowland. Michael Rowland. <laughs> <laughs> but you know he's a famous Bordeaux enologist and winemaker. You know he makes wine for Chateau Le Bon Pasteur. I mean it's a famous Bordeaux house. So once again they can come down here or they can come down to Chile in the other season. Have fun, make wine down there, and then go back home during the other season. Plus, yeah, plus the fun. Th- well, you're I guess. skipping winners then too. <laughs> no, you're not though. Think about. I mean, sort well, of. Yeah, you're you're always in fall, basically. Fall's a pretty badass time That's of the true. year. Depending on where, well, I guess if you're in Chile, it's probably nice weather. I mean, fall in California is amazing. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure if anywhere that grows grapevines, fall is just That's amazing. Like yeah. it's not like fall in Arizona or fall in like <laughs> You mean our permanent autumn <laughs> till it becomes spring for a week and then summer? Yeah, like here we had winter this year for one week. Two days. <laughs> yeah, it was about a week this year. It was cold. I think I think we had two frost warnings. <laughs> so this wine, what do you think of it? Because it's So my first initial initial thoughts are when I open the bottle. The nose was real pungent in a good way. Like, there was a lot there. Um, like I said, it was that dusty cigar box. It, it, it was that danky, old-style smell. And now that it's opening up, the fruit is starting to pop out a little bit more. I still can't place anything I'm thinking of, but it's becoming fruity-ish. And then sipping it, my first initial sip was, you know, the acid's kind of like right in that medium zone. Um, tons of flavor, but it was still a little. it's still a little tight. I, honestly, for being 2004, there's going to be a lot here in the next 30 minutes. It's I, just going to keep opening up. I feel like, yeah, this wine is, we're not doing it justice necessarily drinking it right now because it's so tight. It's a closed fist right now. Yeah. Like, the mid palate is so muted. Should I those in a decanter? The, the mid palate is so muted. I'd maybe pour half it in the decanter. All right, I'm going to go grab and, that. And just kind of see what happens. Yeah. And then we could do a side-by-side, -side, actually. We could take a glass and put it next to this one and do two Bordeaux glasses with a decanted version and an undecanted version. Because um, to me, it's got a an intriguing nose. The first front of the palate is a little dusty, a little cavey. It's got... But the, the mid-palate, it, it, it wants to come out, but it's like trapped behind this door. That's probably a good way to put it, is that... It's that tight fist. Like, I know it's there. I'm just like, I'm saying hi to it, but it's not quite saying hi to me yet. Now, I'm not getting a lot of fruit characteristics off of this. I'm getting a lot of, like, more herbaceous characters. I'm getting more spices. I'm getting a lot more, almost of that m mushroom. I mean, they talk about forest floor. I mean, almost like decaying leaves. You know, if you think about, what like, that decaying... It's funny you say it's just, you say the mushroom and and it, it's the earthy aspect is always what gets to me in a lot of wines because I never know like what I'm smelling because I've grown up in a desert my whole life so I've never been really around decaying smells but the one thing I do know is when I when I cook mushrooms with like certain baking but there is a very distinct smell that comes off of that and that there's a hint of that coming out so there's there's a mushroomy character but I, I I have a lot of problems and this is my biggest blind spot in in tasting wines is I have a lot of very unique smells that I know um, just from experience and then there's a lot that I miss like I can attribute a lot of desert smells like honestly me saying the sandstorm thing I know because I know what it smells like when a sandstorm comes through here but if you're living in you know, Oregon, Washington, New York, you have no idea what a sandstorm smells like when it comes through. There's a very distinct characteristic to it in your nose and obviously in the breathing situation in the house. But there's very specific desert flavors. And so I don't I don't know decay that much. Like maybe one time if I spent a month in a place where it was fall or autumn or something, I would be like, oh, so there's that smell. Like I, I get what people are talking about. It's that fall smell. You just nailed it right there. It's that that the leaves have been sitting down on the ground. You go to rake them up and the bottom level of those leaves have already started to kind of break down a little bit. It has this kind of musty, decaying chlorophyll kind of characteristic. Okay. It's kind of like if you take grass. You know, when you cut grass, if you take that grass and then throw it in a pile in your yard for two months and then you go to, like, rake it up, it's got that smell of, like, decaying grass, like yeah. mulch yeah. kind of characteristic. 
to me, it's got a little touch of that on the like. It's just that's that decaying forest floor character. Yeah, because my my thought on the mushroom things was is when I first smelled it with that dusty kind of characteristic, I was thinking cave dust, like uh, like if somebody it's going to sound weird, but like hit mold and a spray. But like if I walk into a, a cave that's not too de- that wasn't affected by water, I'd be like, okay, there's a smell to that. But that's a lot of decay in a lot of caves in some cases. And this does have that Chilean nose a little bit. Like, there is I'm, an herbiness creeping out a little bit. I'm getting... But none of that crazy green note. I have, like, none of that, really. I don't get that green bell pepper. It's, it's there, but it's so refined. Because, honestly, a lot of the Chilean wines, being... Someone who blind tastes a lot of wines. Someone goes, here, try this. I smell it. I get fresh cut green bell peppers. I'm like, oh, it's Chilean cab. I mean, yeah, that is just, just... Yeah, exactly. Or for me, the Sauvignon Blancs that I... I mean, I love some of the Sauvignon Blancs that come out of Chile, but some of them are straight up jalapeno. Yes, it's absolutely. Like, you're like It's like, holy shit. Uh, I've had Pinot Noirs that the second I smelled it, and I, I was like, I, this is going to taste like a green bell pepper, and I taste it, and I'm like, it's raw. It feels like I'm making like a fajita right now before I started cooking it. <laughs> now, it's probably some of the best value Pinot Noir you can buy in the world is coming out of Chile. There was one I had one time from Chile. Um, it was called Ritual, and they were over in the Casablanca Valley, and I thought they were starting to do an amazing job for being, at the time, I think it was a $16 Pinot Noir. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was great for the price point. So I, I'm intrigued to see what they are, you know, six years later now. And I, I'm not sure if they were new or not, but I, I really enjoyed it. I know the potential's there. There's so much potential. It's not like there's not potential anywhere, but Chile has a crazy amount of potential. And they haven't truly ruined their name like some other countries that have potential. We, there's been a number like of... what? Well, you have Australia... Yeah. Australia became very popular in the United States and they shot themselves in the foot. They started putting out crappy bulk wine. They started putting out what we called critter wines. <laughs> critter wines were never heard this. Really? I never heard critter wine. Critter wines were wines that everything had a critter on the label. Everything had some sort of bug, animal, like it was <laughs> like think about every wine that came out of uh, uh, Australia eight years ago. Everything had a critter on the label, or it was a combination of critters. Like it was like a liger on the label, or something oh, like that. Wow, that's crazy. I, I'm like, I'm so intrigued now. So, so they, so the critter labels became very popular, and they started putting out a lot of bulk wines and stuff that was kind of like juice box kind of wines. And it really, they I, shot, I, they shot themselves in the foot. I did notice that is. I think of Australia, and I immediately think of Shiraz. And the problem is, is I think a lot of. Super high alcohol, super concentrated, yeah, real jammy, big, massive Shiraz. Like I think of Velvet Glove kind of wines, and I know Velvet Glove's a great example of a good Shiraz. And I know Penfolds is out there, but I recently had something from uh, is Margaret River, Margaret mm-hmm. River. It was one of the best wines I think I've had, and they're just like, well, you're not really going to see it because it's on the west side. But you're right. My first thought is that it's same thing with New Zealand. Honestly, my first thought of New Zealand is they're Sauv Blanc, but like they're not really good Sauv Blanc. Years ago, I represented one of the a very culty, iconic winery from Australia called Kuyung. Mm. And Kuyung is, it's almost like Burgundy. I mean, they they put out some of the most beautiful Chardonnay. This is Australia? Australia. Bur- oh. Burgundy and Pinot, or, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that were stunning. You did give me a Riesling one time from Australia. That was pretty amazing. I do love Australian Rieslings. Uh, Margaret River does a lot of very, Rieslings. Very, very ethnic. Clara Valley does a lot of Rieslings, I believe. Um, does Chile do a lot of Riesling? I don't, know. I don't think I've really... And to be honest, I don't think I've ever had a Riesling from Chile. I bet they'd probably make some great stuff, you know, if you got up to certain points of the mountain, like right before the snow fell. You know, they're, they're, they, they could be like Italy. They could grow anything everywhere, and eventually stuff will stick real well. They're big into reds. 
bread is their varietal. Like, but you think about the cuisine, it's a lot of meat, meat. down there. Yeah, and, a lot of meat. And Which is surprising. You think it'd be a lot of fish. You would think. Chilean sea bass. <laughs> but in America, it's not Chilean sea bass. It's like right. some other white, nasty fish. <laughs> so, But they do a ton of cab, ton of Merlot, Carmenere. It's, it's, it's all about the reds. Bordeaux blends. Yeah. You know, the reds have done very well. Plus, they thrive down there with the way the soil is, with the way being on natural rootstock, the roots go very deep. They irrigation naturally everywhere from the mountains. Yep. The the sandy soil and the way the roots go so deep it draws in a lot of nutrients. So you end up with a lot of very healthy fruit that comes out of Chile. Um just the way it is. Unfortunately, they don't cut the crops back. There's a lot of overproduction. There's a lot of greenness that comes out. And I personally don't like the greenness. I know a ton of people do. I'm I'm just think here in Arizona people would love it. Yeah, and I, I don't fault anybody for their wine tastes. No. It's something that I got a little snobby at one point in my life, and then I said... Yeah, we all have it. It's there in the back. And then I just realized, you know what? We all taste something different. We all like different things. I don't... I was talking to some buddies the other night, and they were giving somebody shit about liking plum wine and Zimindel, uh, white Zimindel. And I was like... <laughs> okay, so drinking. Yeah, they're drinking wine. Like, hey, whatever. It's, you got to start somewhere. I mean, they were kind of younger, so... Who knows? That person in 10 years might be buying cases of Cloopter. They might be buying Great Burgundy. I'm still not convinced. I've spent enough money on beer, craft beer, and everything as I have from college to now as when I was in high school to college on Bud Light. All I've spent, I've drank more Bud Light in my entire life than I have any other beer, and I haven't had a Bud Light in maybe 10 years. <laughs> I mean, but we had to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. I mean, for me, it was the same way. I mean, I was drinking Keystone Light, and I was drinking cheap vodkas, and then once I got into wine, it was like the first wines that was like, oh my gosh. I remember it was like Sterling Sauvignon Blanc. I was like, I can actually swallow this. This yeah. is actually good. Yeah. Mine was a Malbec. It was the very first one because I remember my dad gave me wines. I'm like, wow, this is something I never want to drink. And then all of a sudden I had a Malbec one day from this girl and I was like, yep, I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> it's. I hope Chile continues to put out good wines. I feel that, I mean, really... Where they're at now is only about 20, 25, 30 years into their production. They've been doing it since the 1500s. Yeah. But because of the way the government is and the way everything is, I mean, plus they were bulk wines. They were making pace, pay, pies, pace, whatever you call yeah, it. Yeah, P-A-I-S. Yeah. Like yeah. just cheap jug wine. Like. Yeah, and Pisco, which they were just distilling all that liquor stuff from. But them putting out quality wines to export to market has really only been in the last 20 years. It seems more and more like... And I don't know if this is a knock on the country or the people who are down there. And, and the same thing even in America. But the people who are spending the most money to make cl- like a lot of like really good wines have to come from somewhere else. So, for instance, you know, Chile's good wine people seems to be owned or helped by the French. Um, well, even in America, the people who killed it for a while, you know, like Krug and Mandavi weren't really, they were probably bringing stuff over and help from, uh, Italy and France as well. Well, like I said, n- 90% of the people that live down there are all immigrants anyways. Yeah. Like they all came from Europe and Spain and France. So of course that's where their heritage comes from. So yeah. when you're like, Oh, it's really a Frenchman that makes it. Well, yeah, it's a Frenchman, but his family settled down there in 1903 because they brought their vineyards with them because yeah. of phylloxera. They're not really Chilean. They're. Their grandkids are Chilean, but they're all like immigrants, realistically. I mean, honestly, imagine 120 years ago, your vineyard getting devastated, and you're like, 
Fuck it. I'm hopping on a boat. That's crazy. With no GPS. A boat with these live plants in my suitcase. No GPS. Nope. No no phones. No way to like figure out where you're going. You're like, I'm going to Chile and I'm going to go plant my shit and start another winery. And oh, by the way, you could have went to Argentina or America, but instead you decided to go down around the bottom tip and end up in Chile. Because if you were landing in the 1900s, you weren't going from Argentina over the mountains into Chile. You had to go around the continent into in a boat. And you were probably landing wherever you landed. Like there wasn't like a directions. It wasn't like, oh, we're aiming for Santiago. Yeah. <laughs> and Santiago's inland. So it's like, you know, we're going to be somewhere. And then you get off the boat and go, oh, those mountains look cool. We'll go plant over there. Dude, I've been to James's house 10 times. I have to ask him for directions every time I go to his house and his address. Imagine trying to like. <laughs> and get... you have Google Maps. Yeah. Imagine trying to like be like, I'm leaving Bordeaux and going to Chile. Oh my god! <laughs> on yeah. a on a sailboat, and and by the way, <laughs> not being like, hey, take care of my dog and cat. I'll be back in a week. It's like, bye. Yeah. Uh, enjoy the next neighbor. I'm never. You're never coming back. No credit cards. No. I mean, imagine what it took to get your family together to say, you know what, we're going and we're gonna go start. Like I got a lot of yeah. respect for the people that pulled that off that long ago. Ah, that's crazy to me because like I I don't even want to move my house sometimes. Like, oh man, I yeah. got to go rent a new house and I need to move. These people just went, nah, we're out. Bye. <laughs> yeah, we're going to a different country where to be honest, we're not even sure if the planet, the world is flat or round or what at that point. <laughs> <laughs> There's still not people this day that think the earth is round. So yeah. No, but uh, it's, it's not. And, and even if it was, the <laughs> <laughs> well, then in that case, you wouldn't take a boat. You could just walk over to Chile. <laughs> you want to have this discussion? <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that is, that's a whole nother style. Of, and by the way, you're right. When you get there, you don't know if the natives truly like you or not either. Oh God. Yes. That's another thing. Yeah. It's not like you're welcome. Like you're like, oh, Hey, uh, look at us. We're here. Uh, we're going to go up in those mountains. And if you're French, maybe you don't speak Spanish or, you know, I know Chile is Spanish, but they might have their own dialect. So it might be a little bit different. And then you have to go through military dictatorships, different revolutions. What's, what's kind of crazy about this wine to me, as I'm just tasting it, is it's very light in the palate. What I mean by that, the viscosity is very, it's not a heavy wine. What do you mean by viscosity to people who are listening? It's It's the... The thickness of the wine and like the body. To, yeah, to put it this way is that, you know, when it comes, to, let's see, you have cola is not as thick as milk, but they're both thicker than water. Yeah, I, I attribute body to like you're drinking skim milk if it's light and whole milk if it's a heavy body wine and, and, and everything else is in between. And you talk about like a Napa Valley Cabernet versus a Pinot Noir. A yeah. Napa Valley Cabernet has more weight when it lands on your palate. Versus a Pinot Noir tends to be a little lighter. You end up with a wine sometimes that tastes watery. That's just that light body to it or that that low viscosity. Whereas something with high viscosity is going to be heavy and full. Those big Shirazes, like a Henschke Shiraz from Barossa, that thing's a mouthful. Yeah. I mean, that's got some weight to it. Whereas I was expecting this wine to have a lot Lodi more. Lodi Zin has a lot of weight to yeah. it. Yeah. I was expecting this wine to be have a lot of weight. And when it hits my palate, it's actually very, very light on my tongue. Yeah, for the nose that's on it, I think I think what you get on the palate is very deceiving because for as big as this nose is, you're right, the second it hits your tongue, you're like, it's really subtle. It's a skinny man with a fat man's personality <laughs> is, is how I'm feeling right now in my head. Like when I taste this wine, I'm like, this is a, this has the palate, the flavor profile of a bigger wine, but it's, it's light. Like I don't feel weighted down. I could drink this. 
outside on a hot day. I don't want to drink a Shiraz outside on a hot day. Mm. Whereas this is light enough. It's light bodied for being a big bodied wine. It's weird to say that. It's like, it's almost an anomaly. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I'm assuming it's, it's, it's a unique grape, this Carmenere grape, especially let's assume that, uh, you're going to go for the decanter one. Yeah. Try that. Um, the grape itself is so close. Everybody always thought it was Merlot for the longest time, but it's actually a closer relative to Cab Franc. It's actually on the lineage of how the, where this grape comes from. It's a great-grandchild of Cab Franc. So Cab Franc is one of its parent grapes, and it's basically a half-brother and sister to Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. So they're all similar in character, but yet it's amazing how light this body. It feels and seems lighter than what most Merlots would be, but it's not even close to being a cab. I wonder if they thought it was Merlot because of the way it looked on the vine. That's that's what everything I got from it. Like if you showed the leaf side by side and the grape clusters, they look exactly like, and they ripen and bud right about the exact same time. I mean, they had to actually send off in, in the mid to late 90s to UC Davis to make a DNA test to see if it was different. The, the, the canted better. The canted one smells a little poopy. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little Chateau Nuffy de poopy. <laughs> it does. It's It's got that little bit of... Uh, the farty? It's, it's not Brett, but you know, when you kind of get that slight... Uh, we tried a wine uh, on one of our first shows and I said something a little uh, vulgar about it. That's how I feel about this one. It's got that kind of... I don't know how to, it's it's definitely got more of a dirtier nose once it's been decanted. Like there's no there's no it's not fruit. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I, but do you notice there's that dustiness in there? And it's yes. not like it's high alcohol. Like I'm not kidding. When I say it feels like tannins are in my nose and not in my mouth when I smell it. It's we talked about one of the last shows. What's the name of that that smell you smell when it after it rains? Uh Pyrazine. That's not pyrazine. That, we said that, but is it? <laughs> that's persimmon. Per- <laughs> something along those lines. Isn't persimmon a flower? A persimmon. Persimmon. All right, that was way off. Whatever. Now, I, uh, I, I, if somebody were to bring this to me and said, uh, "I've got this really unique Chilean wine," I think the problem is, and I think it's super unfortunate, especially now. This is definitely breaking down some walls for me. If somebody said, "Hey, I've got this really awesome Chilean wine," unfortunately, I would set the bar low just because they said Chilean wine. Me too. And it's clearly a fault on our part for not knowing, you know, what they have. Granted, we're in Arizona, but we're both in the wine industry. We know there's great examples of places everywhere. This knocks it out of the park for me. This actually gives me an idea of, wow, actually, Chilean has some amazing wines, but you got to, like, search for it. And especially, this is, you're right, it's a 14-year-old wine for Carmenere Merlot, which I don't know the aging potential of those grapes, and it's holding up real nicely. The tannins are almost non-existent. It's real soft on tannin. It's very light. The nose is huge. And there's good flavor there. The finish kind of falls off a little bit quicker than I, I was thinking, though. Now, I'm wondering, so the big publications have given this wine almost every year great scores. It's probably very different upon release than it is 14 years later. It's a good point. So when it when this is released, it's probably got a lot more aggression. It's probably got a lot more grip. They're probably looking at it saying, this is going to be a wine that's going to be soft and sexy and supple in 10 years. And that's mm-hmm. where we're tasting it now, where it definitely has calmed down. It's it's had its anger issues probably when it was <laughs> young. And now it's like, all right, I, I've I've gotten my piss and vinegar out of my life. And now he's I'm, that 45 year old man that's got a kid and, you know, he's well off and he doesn't need to do too much. And he's, he's not taking in, it easy. He's. He, 
he's not he's, interested in a uh, midlife crisis at this point. He's got he's, like one Tommy Bahama shirt, but not a whole closet yet. <laughs> it's so funny we could say that about wine, but it makes sense. Yeah. Versus versus the the twenty year old who's getting tattoos and piercings and like and ready to fight everybody at the drop of a hat. <laughs> yeah. This this wine is it's mature. You know, it's definitely not. It's, uh, it's the forty-seven-year-old lady who, when you see it, you're like, "Oh, yeah, she's pretty." But then, if you met up with her later, and she'd be the most fit human being on the planet. <laughs> this is the no, the alcohol on, is now kicking off a little bit more on the decanted version. Um, I'm getting on the nose a little more heat that's showing through. Yeah, um, there's definitely a little bit of alcohol in it. It's uh, it's right about fifteen percent. What does it have? Yeah, fourteen eight. Yeah, plus or minus one. I'm glad we decanted a little bit, just to kind of do them side we'll by side. Go back side. to that bottle. We'll go back to yeah. the bottle because we left half in the bottle and half is in the decanter. There's a little more creaminess now on the decanted version. It's got a little more uh, fruit that's been stewed down the end of the palate. To me, the finish has gotten longer now after we've decanted it. It's leaving more saliva in my mouth now later on down the way. Yeah. It's it's really tough to decide, do you decant or do you not decant? I do like one thing about this is uh, there's not a crazy amount of oak on it. Like, I'm getting the lightest amount of oak. Like, honestly, it's not so overpowering. It's not lingering much there. Like, I'm getting some baking spices. I, I'm From the taste and nose I'm getting, I think I would guess this probably only spent time in French oak. I'm not getting any vanilla, coconut, or dill or anything like that no. anyway, but I'm getting this little bit of baking spice, like a clove almost in there, which kind of immediately triggers my French idea at this point. Well, the, the fact that it's made by a Frenchman, there's no way in hell that dude's going to be using American yeah, I guess that's a good point. He's yeah. a, like, there's no way. In fact, he's probably bringing his barrels from France and using second and third passage. I didn't do any research on the winery, what they do with I, I this. I haven't either. I, I just brought this bottle. I just looked up stuff for I wanted to know about chili and the grapes, and but I have no idea how they do this. But to me, if somebody told asked me, hey, what is the most iconic collector wine out of Chile? This is it. This is the wine that I that I think this of. one? Yes. Okay. Hands down. Can you is there any other Chilean wine that you think, oh my just god? One. Vera. S- just one. Senya. All right. Senya is the only one I can think of. And the other reason is, and Senya is huge, by the way. Senya was... Uh, well, Senya is uh, Mandavi's project. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay, because Senya, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they did a um, like a Chilean version of the, the, the Paris tasting, the way we did that in 1976. Senya beat out uh, Lafitte, and there was another one there. I think it was Margot. I'm almost positive it was. And uh, in a blind tasting, Senya from Chile won. And this was like 2005, 2004... Somewhere like that. So I know clearly Chile has potential. Yeah. Well, but I, I would say Senya is probably clearly number one. And then this one. Well, and was it uh, Concha del Toro? Yeah, that's, but that's a huge, like, well, the, like the, well known, the Castelio y Toro or something. Yes, but they make a, a high end version, the Don Melcor. And mm. that is another one of those iconic wines. Yeah, that Vic, that Viker, Vike Vic. I wish I would knew the exact one. I know that guy's killing it right now. He's doing such a great job. So clearly, it's there. Uh, what do you think is the and Montez? That's another big one that people know of. Montez, Montez and the Alpha. Like yeah. they're they're so th- there are some iconic ones that people see that they buy. And sometimes I think people buy some wines from Chile that they don't even realize that they're from Chile. So Concha y Toro. Yeah, is that the one that comes with the bowl? 
You know, like it's got the bullhorn like uh, topper. Have you ever seen that? It's uh, it's like a bottle stopper. It's literally the bullhorns. They used to come on the bottle. They might. I can picture the label of like their ordinary labels. Yeah, but but I know like their Don Melcor is like their high end ultimate. Like, so what's what to them for people who don't know Chile? um, There's, I think like eleven regions now at this point from like San Antonio Valley, Casablanca, Maipo, a bunch of these. What was there if somebody said, "Hey, there's a region that's like Napa Valley, where hey, here's the best stuff." Are you familiar enough to say like, "Oh, you know, there's this one region that everybody kind of knows"? Because I know, you know, I think of Maipo just because that's some of the stuff I used to sell before. Yeah, that I, seems to be the bit that Central Valley region. You know, that's kind of. I've never put a lot of effort into studying Chilean wines. Because most of the stuff I've represented over the years has been more affordable wines. I almost said cheap. More affordable. Inexpensive. Inexpensive styled wines. So I learned some basics of the regions, but I didn't dive so deep into it. Kind of like, not like I have with something like Barolo. Yeah. Because... Well, you know the hills of Barolo. Right. But but Chile doesn't have a, a full cruise system set up like Barolo or set up like Burgundy or set up like Bordeaux. Yeah, or, they, they have sub-regions, but probably not as online with the AVAs of America. I've, though they've been around since the 1500s making wine, like I said, most of their vineyards were gone by 1990. So this is still very new for them, I think, as far as like redoing the Chilean presence and vision of what they do plus not only that they get nailed by freaking earthquakes like you wouldn't believe like like, god that's great for them though it's funny that's that's their one big thing is earthquakes because there's no hurricanes are ever going to hit them but they in the last 10 years i know of at least two that have hit their wineries that have devastated the chilean wineries like the pictures you see online like i've i've had tears coming down my face oh well dude i mean it's like i was saying earlier it's literally an active plate that's smashing into the argentinian side so i mean that's the whole point of the andes is that whole thing is rising up so yeah you're right earthquake i mean wasn't the uh the chilean miners you know they all got stuck there <laughs> yeah i mean but these vineyards like these earthquake wi- that that happened there devastated santiago these, these wines that are sitting on racks just aging and then they uh are Earthquake hits and they all get spilled out and knocked over and broken. And, you know, for a winemaker, that's your life. You have one vintage. You have one shot once a year to do this. That's it. And if you lose a vintage, you just lost your salary for the whole year. And oh, by the way, not necessarily the vintage. You might lose a couple depending on how many are in barrels. Yeah. I mean, it's out of <clears throat> Napa has got Napa got that one a couple of years ago. That 2014. Was pretty, pretty gnarly. I but, lost barrels on that one. Yeah. But I've seen Chile's been just devastated more than once because of the uh, earthquakes. I'm surprised that they don't, and I know, I'm sure they exist somewhere, but like well-made racks that can withstand something. But I mean, I'm assuming up to a point. Maybe we're on to something right there too. Like shockproof racks. Every episode, we got to invent something. Tanks that sit on uh, rocking tables that... A shift and move. Well, well, they have those. It's probably ra- great for the wines, you know. They have stirs the, up the leaves. They have those racking systems, which you know the other ones was just barrels, and then you have like a little metal rack, and then a barrel on top yeah. of it. But the Italians have really done a lot with the ones that are racks on wheels, so you don't have to remove the bung to stir the leaves. They're actually got wheels in the top and the bottom, so all you got to do is put your hands in the barrel and, and just rock and, it and rock it and roll it, so you can you can mix your leaves without exposing your wine I to air. Absolutely, believe somebody accidentally one day hit a bung and spilled a bunch of crap out and just started swearing like crazy. So, so 
if you take a racking system like that, but then maybe you put rubber grommets on the bottom, so this way if an earthquake hits and it's shaking, it's like the way the foundations are of buildings in San Francisco. Yeah. So it will sway and not like fall down because unfortunately, if you look at the racking systems most of those people used, it was like the little H metal thing that went yeah. between the barrels that they just stack them up. I mean, if I backed into it hard enough, they'd probably fall over. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. Yeah, my own those forklifts I drive around. Holy crap. But those rocking systems that have like little wheels and tires on them, they could just rock them. I think something like that might work better if an earthquake hit because they're actually more contained. I don't Not know. to mention, you know, if like, like you have your vineyard on the side of a hill and you get a good slide, all of a sudden your vineyard's gone. You know, because all it takes is one side of your hill to go. And, you know, you don't know who it's going to be, where it's going to be, but the whole land is shifting like crazy. Yeah. Because, yeah, what else are they going to get? They're not going to get hurricanes. They're not going to get tornadoes. They're, the weather, if you're up in one area and down to the other, is so unique. You could probably buy grapes from everywhere and get it transported up in a day. I don't imagine fires are crazy and chilly. No. It's funny about this region, too, When I now that I'm thinking about it. A lot of the producers that are down there have Spanish and French and Italian heritage, but they're considered a new world wine region because they use varietals in the labels. They're not doing it by the region. Like, uh. Think about it. This, this Frenchman who makes this wine makes a wine in Bordeaux, whereas he comes here and he makes a wine and he puts in the label Cabernet Sauvignon or Carmenere. Not with this one. This one has a name, but the rest of the Casa La Postelle line. So, so new world wines always have the varietal on the label. Old world wines, it's the region. It's the region. That's, that's the basics. So he kind of does it. A Palta Vineyard. Oh, Culture. Culture. Wow. Culture Valley. Oh, Agua. Holy crap, it's actually in the name. That's retarded. <laughs> yeah, Colchagua Valley and Estate Bottled. So, Colchagua Valley, I wonder where that is. But Chile, most of the wines down there, they put the varietal on it. It's, it's you're drinking Sauvignon Blanc, you're drinking Cabernet Sauvignon, you're drinking, you know, it's New World Wine Region. But a lot of these guys are Old World guys that are making it. Yeah, it's, it's so good right now. <laughs> I'm actually really surprised about this. I definitely want to dive more into some Chilean wines down the road to get a feel of how they do their cab. Like I was, it's really funny that, that, that Melissa happened to bring a Chilean wine in for today to try it. And I was like, wow, that's a great Bordeaux wine. It's, you know what, though? It's the one thing that I kind of, and I feel weird about, is I would probably not drift to Chilean Bordeaux's only because I've got Napa here, and if I want to try a Bordeaux, I'll just get French style. At least in Italy, I'm getting crazy different grapes all the time that aren't similar. Even in Spain, you're getting your Tempranillos, your Grenaches. But Chile, you know, try something maybe unique, and obviously Carmenere is their grape to try. Definitely go for the Carmenere, but for me, Chile is not the region I gravitate towards because I personally don't, like I said, I don't like that greenness, and just like I don't gravitate towards California Chardonnay. But you could give me a California Chardonnay that I'd be like, man, this is delicious. Yeah. So it's funny you say that because I love certain California Chardonnay, but some of them are just so big. Like I can't believe not, they can get them up to 15% alcohol sometimes. You know, I, I've been very surprised over the years. I've actually sold some unbelievable Chilean wines. And usually when I go into a tasting and I'm showing them around town or I'm showing them to a big buyer around the country, I go in saying, this doesn't taste like your typical Chilean wine. That's almost like a salesman kind of thing. Yeah. You know? And we talk about people shooting themselves in the foot. That might be one of the problems that Chilean has is the reputation that everything, all the cabs taste green. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like it's exactly a food friendly wine. If your wine has a green bell pepper note in it, maybe it'll pair well with Mexican food out here, but 
Yeah, I can't really see. That's a problem we have out here in Arizona. Is sometimes people get them under ripe, and there's a huge green note in some of the grapes. Yeah, it's plus. I I think some of these people they're picking because they have to pay some bills. They're picking because they have to feed their family. They're picking. This is this <laughs> dictator is, wants their money. I hate this. I mean, this this isn't a first world country across the up and down. You know, we say that as if we don't have to pay taxes to the city, taxes to the county, taxes to whatever the feds. It's funny how much money when the end we give up and just because we're not like somebody's not forcing us to get I me mean, it's forcing its taxes but it's it's different cuz I still have to give a decent amount of money away from your product. <laughs> yeah, well every country is completely different. Yeah. I mean as weird as it sounds, your father recommended a show for us to watch called Dangerous Waters of these guys <laughs> riding jet skis around the world. I was watching an episode earlier of these guys riding through. <laughs> Did you watch one? <laughs> I, yeah. So, but these guys are riding through uh, Croatia and stuff like that. And every single. They made it over to Croatia now. <laughs> yeah, every single time they cross into a new country, they end up paying $10,000 in fines because they're like, you crossed our country illegally because you were on a jet ski. And they have to go through all these laws and rules and regulations. And that's the way, I mean, every country out there is like that. They, that's imagine such a ridiculous show. The, the people that live in Chile and Argentina, imagine the amount of taxes and weird loopholes and laws they have to pay and go through. I mean, this show is ridiculous. And, and, and not to mention the fact that this is, these are countries that either are or recently have been under dictator control. Yeah. That they've, I'm not saying they're corrupt, I'm just saying that there's been corruption. <laughs> like, the people are great the people that were leading them not so much probably well you know it's what happens when you get some of these guys in power and they start they want put their hands in everyone's pockets and when you see booze and you see people making money in wine you're like hey I could take a little of their money a little of their money and unfortunately I think it really hurt the Chilean industry coming out of the bottle is so different it really is I mean this is a very interesting wine overall. I'm curious as to why the spectator and them give it such high scores every year, but I can see because it's it's very unique. It's refined. Yeah. It's also there's 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 a difference between a clunky wine, a wine that's like, "Oh, this is big or this is this and it's all just unilateral. It's one type of flavor." Where this, you and I keep staring into the glass and there's just different. there's so much going on. Every sip tastes completely different. The nose is what's getting me the most. Like I, I'm not drinking it as much as I'm smelling it because it's. I think you kind of nailed it earlier. There's nothing so distinct coming out that I'm like, oh, there it is. That's this one specific nose. It's just it's. There's a lot going on. You poured this wine when we started. I did not take my first sip until the 35 minute mark. That I, I didn't take one for 20 minutes probably too. Yeah, but it's that's the first time we've done that. <laughs> That's such an intriguing thing to me about wines. When I get a great wine, I'm not drinking it. I'm smelling it. That's happened to me at so many events. Like a friend has come up with a special bottle and said, hey, try this. 20 minutes later, he comes up and goes, what'd you think? I go, it's, I haven't tried it yet. It's still in my glass. I'm still yeah. enjoying the nose and the like, just wine is more than just drinking. It is fun too. And I think also there's a force of habit for me. I like to have something in my hands. Can I like to swirl? Like I'm very twitchy. So like I have resting arms or yeah, instead of resting leg. Or was it? Reckless. Hold on. Give me a sec. What is the thing where your leg bounces all the time? Resting is leg resting syndrome. Leg? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. Anyways, I got that with my arm. Like I got a constantly. So I like swirling a glass. So I like to have something in my glass to constantly smell more than I do like to drink. I think every wine person. Restless leg. Yes. Got it. I knew, all right, I've got restless arm syndrome. I think every wine person, God, though, like pulling teeth. we get this thing with swirling glasses 
And I catch myself with water and coke all the time, constantly. I could be sitting there with an iced tea and all of a sudden I start swirling it. And I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. You don't even realize you're doing it until somebody's kind of looking at you like, that's kind of weird. Yeah. People are like, did you just swirl your iced tea? Yeah. I find myself and I've I've done it with a full glass of stuff every now and I'm like, why did I do that? But yeah, I know this is a good example of one of those wines where this is going to sound maybe a little weird. I think I like the nose more than I do the wine. Like, I really enjoy smelling this. You know, there's so much to it. There's a lot of complexity. Tasting it, it's great. It's a great wine. But the complexity is in the nose more than it is the wine to me. I think our biggest problem we're having with this is it's not opening at all. I I shook... Decanter made a difference in taste, but not a crazy amount. I shook that decanter. Like, it was like... It had a layer of bubbles of foam on the top. We should have put it in the blender. Yeah, because I literally, it's still so tight. It's random because even Barolos, I've, I know they're going to open up. This wine to me is, I have a weird feeling this is going to be three, four hours before it opens up, even with Venturi's blenders, everything else. <laughs> cowboy decanting. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you, you can't, ca- you can't cowboy decant this. Cowboy decant? You know what that is. That's when you stick your thumb in it and you just shake it. Uh. <laughs> 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 no, I did not know that. Yeah, that's. I, I was like, do you stick it on a bull? <laughs> I don't know if I made that up or I heard it somewhere, but I've just always called it cowboy decanting. Is when you're just like uh, trademark. Can we if we just say trademark? Does that count, <laughs> or do we actually have to submit something? When you don't have a decanter and you're just hanging out with your friends on a beach somewhere, you're like, I got to open this up. You stick your thumb in it and just give it a shaky shake, <laughs> you know, and it totally works. I've done it so many times. Now you can't do it with an old one. You can't. A shaky shake. <laughs> you can't. I'm putting that on a label somewhere. Just stick your thumb in it and give it a shaky shake. That's hilarious. It's going to be the most offensive label I've ever had. You, you, you can't do it with a wine that's like this that has sediment all in it. <laughs> oh my John's god. John's losing it. He's got like uh, tears coming I down almost, at this point. Uh, I almost. That was, that was a close tear moment, man. That was... <laughs> A shaky shake. Man, I used to do that in the sales rep business. Like, you get to that first account and we like... Need to, we just need to have a t-shirt store of half the stuff you say <laughs> at this point. Give it a shaky shake. <laughs> Favorite five-letter word. Oh, man. Who needs a decanter when you have a cowboy decanter? Cowboy decanter. <laughs> I was born with five or two of them don't, in don't my thumbs. A, don't, don't have a decanter? Just shove your thumb in it. Well, I saw... So, I actually saw a sommelier once doing it. He was sitting... <laughs> he was... It was an actual Psalm who worked at a restaurant who was our restaurant Psalm, and he was sitting in the well with a bottle of wine, and this dude was shaking it like I've never seen anybody shake anything. Like it's like a dude who was like working out and he's like trying to get his like shake, like shake weight. This dude is going to town. Like, and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, it's so tight. He spent about 10 minutes shaking that wine. He took a sip, he goes, Nope, not ready yet. I was like, Holy, I've never seen anybody shake a wine like this. And at that point, I'm like, aren't you gonna do something hurt it? And he's like, No. And he gave me this look like, why are you asking me that? And then it kind of hit me. I was like, oh, all he's doing is doing a decanter in the bottle, just adding air. And since then, I've always done it. When I've been out in the markets, like selling wine, I get to my first account. I'm like, everything's tight. The buyer turns his head around. I grab the bottle, stick my thumb in it. Shake, shake. Is that, is that why the wines smell a little bit poopy? <laughs> oh, shut up. <laughs> it's, it's, you're just adding air. It's just like the Venturi, everything else. Yeah, it's all it really needs to is just get like a violent amount of air in there that quick. Because that's a, that's a that's a good way of doing it though. I'm just glad there's a name I can now put to it. Cowboy decanting. Cowboy decanting. It it, it works. It it kind of fits. It's so weird. I wonder why I came. Yeah, whatever. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna let 
I'm just going to assume that you made this up. <laughs> Honestly, I don't remember anybody ever telling me cowboy decanting. I just, one of those terms, I just, just kind of... popped in your head. Yeah. I like it. Because you know me, often my my mouth talks before my brain actually realizes what I'm saying. <laughs> and I just kind of keep going. I like that your consciousness is like an inner, like geeky, nerdy person, but yet your mouth has no filter at all. So it's like, no, here, here's nonsense. No, it's weird. My mouth and my brain actually are not always connected. <laughs> yeah. We all have that problem. Yeah. <laughs> Especially you, you and I have that problem a lot. <laughs> but but often my brain moves so fast that it doesn't keep up with my mouth. And that's why I talk so fast because I have to get it out right now because my brain's already on the next thought. And my mouth, yeah. is, my mouth is talking about the thought I thought about 10 seconds ago. My brain's already on the next thing. Yeah. And that's why sometimes I get really confused. I'm like, uh, just... That's why I talk so fast. No, I, I, it's funny you say that because, yeah, you are one of the more fast talkers, and most of the time you're very cohesive. But at the end of the night, you know, like once everybody starts drinking, you actually like start to time it together. Versus I, I think I get worse progressively by the more I drink. I start missing words. Like I'll speak sometimes, and all of a sudden I'll miss a word. My brain said it, but it didn't come out my mouth. So I'm like, oh, that's... Not... And then I'll listen to something later. Podcasts. Podcasts, yeah. Like I'll go back. I swear to God, I said a comma in there. I'm like, no, it just... I just missed it. I missed a word in there. So I think in the future with some of the... I've been hitting the head a lot as a child and teenager, so... So, so, <laughs> so in the future, some of our podcasts, we should break down different regions of Chile, kind of see what the different regions are all about, because we, we went for a home run. Like, this isn't a Chilean tasting. We just basically grabbed the most iconic wine. It's like, oh, let's talk about Burgundy with our DRC. <laughs> no joke, seriously. No, but I think we're doing it right. Like, I think we're giving like the 101 right now. Like, hey, here's Chilean wine. Clearly, granted, we're at the top of the ladder, but now we're going to go back down the ladder and show people how they got to uh, a wine like this so that people at least know, all right, cool. So there is something good with Chilean wines. Um, They clearly make something amazing, but I'm so used to bad stuff. So now we're going to try and guide people up that ladder, say, okay, listen, you need to go to this point to get to something so good. So at least you know it's there. You know that the product is fantastic when you get to a certain point. Just... Now you got to try and get up there. And I think as we do more podcasts, you know, we do the 101, then the 202, and then eventually start, you know, consolidating like an episode just strictly dedicated to a valley and bring out three of those wines from the valley and say, listen, here's how the soil works. Here's how the water works. And that's where like, I'll get kind of fun and geeky with it. But I think it's good now. Like I had no expectations with this bottle other than it was Chilean and there's a good chance it probably sucked. Blown away. Not at all. This is a fantastic wine. So. Yeah, honestly, this is the one you could sit down with friends for two, three, four hours, eat some cheese, have a good conversation, and just relax. Have some cured meats. It's funny you said the cheese. I think the cheese and cured meats would nail this one. This doesn't seem like a, not like a non-food friendly wine, but I wouldn't have this wine with dinner. This is the, I would drink this wine, I'd open it first. Let everybody try it while it's young. And I think meats and cheeses would be fantastic, like real fatty kind of stuff, you know, to give some like extra bite, like really salty stuff would go great. Cheeses, the cured meats, olives. But like I, this to me doesn't come across as a dinner wine. There's no, it's not big enough for the type of meats in my mind I'm thinking. Maybe like some like light. chicken or something, something light. Like this seems like a light food wine. For as old and as complex as it is. I mean, the body is just above Pinot Noir body. Barely, yeah. It's not a big-bodied wine for, A, being in a massive bottle, and for the look of it. Looking at it, by the way, it's still dark. You know, uh, holding it down, there's no brown edges to it. It's that it's blood red, you know? It's not ruby, but it's still 
dark in the center. This could still age for another five, six years probably and be good. So what do you have in the glass? Do you have the one from the... I have the bottle in the glass. So grab another glass real quick and pour the one from the the decanter because you just gave it another shaky shake and you just shook the hell out of it. Do you want a glass too? No, I'm good because I just poured some. Um, Every time you shake it and every time you you give it a little workout and open this wine up, to me it gets creamier. Like the, the mallow lactic fermentation is actually coming out more and more and more as this wine opens up. It's not the flavor that's coming out. It's the creaminess, which I find very strange. I don't think I've ever actually had a wine that that has happened where it's almost getting more viscosity as it's opening up. It's becoming more weighted in my mouth as it's opening up. Okay. Smell this. Smell that. You handed me both glasses at the same time. Smell that. Yeah. One, one. Smell. Did you smell from this one? I handed you the dustiness. Like, does this not make this glass smell dusty? A little bit. It smells dusty. I think that the one that's in the decanter, the decanter is getting more getting more chocolatey. Yeah. Like it is it's getting milk chocolatey. Like it's crazy. Like literally like They're I two just, totally different noses between yeah. the bottle and decanter. If I gave you those two wines right now, you might think they were different wines. Yeah. Yeah, the uh the straight out of the bottle, not decanted. So imagine the charred ends of bacon. Not like the juice, not the bacon itself, the charred ends. Mm-hmm. That's the nose I'm getting a little bit more on the bottled version, the decanter version. It's it's dusty, but I, I see where you're going with the milk chocolateness. Yeah. There is a mocha characteristic in there. Now take a sip. Like the, the one out of the bottle almost has like a fernetti herbaceousness, whereas the one that's been decanted and shaken six times now by both you and I is becoming more chocolatey. Like I'm getting milk chocolate now out of it. Whereas the the one out of the bottle to me is, I get that herbaceousness. There's almost like I said a fernettiness out of it. It's really really weird. And I think by the way, <laughs> I can guys, I know I know this is something you can't visually see. He's right in that. You're right. The decanted one has a totally different mouth texture than the bottle when it's just in a bottle. And if you weren't sitting here saying this to me, it would come across as two ones, and I'd be fighting in my brain. Like, what am I looking for? What am I trying to taste? But with you playing puppet master here, telling me this is what to do, I I absolutely definitely can feel a creamy texture to it by being in decanted. And it's not milk chocolate to me. It's a, um, there is that mocha characteristic to it, but uh, I like cold brew a lot. And I like it really, really, really mild. And when I get to the bottom of a cold brew that I made, there's like, it's not the grinds, but it's like the oily texture on the bottom. That's more to me what it is. So it's like an oily coffee, but not like a potent coffee, like coffee ice cream almost that had melted. So it, yeah, I guess kind of milk chocolatey in its own weird way. But yeah, like mouthfeel wise, <laughs> it's different. Your eyes got so big when you look at the glasses because I think you're having trouble comprehending that. Those are actually the same wine. You poured yeah. them. You know they are, but they are—they taste like two different wines at this point. But the dustiness, that's what's blowing my mind, is that weird, sandy dustiness that's coming on the nose. And it's not alcohol. It's just, that's what's tripped me out a lot, is maybe it's just the complexity on the nose. That's why I like smelling this more than I do drinking it. It's, it's a crazy, crazy nose. And this is what's fun about wines. Like, this is, I think, one of the reasons why we geek out. And actually, you nailed it when you talked about me being Puppet Master. This is why you should sit around and drink with your friends and talk about the wines. Because... I've gotten to where I'm at by drinking with my friends. I didn't learn this on my own. It absolutely helps that you have somebody across from you, too, saying, hey, this is what I smell. What do you smell? And then you both can be like, "Uh," because I, a lot of the times, don't know what I'm smelling. 
And then you kind of open up a door and say, is it something like this? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the that's the, what I was thinking but of. You do the or same something thing. subtly different. You yeah. do the same thing for me. I mean, that's how many nights we've sat around and you've been like, I smell this or taste that. I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. I do like our super vulgar nights, though. Hard dark saw moments. Oh, it smells like burnt pizza that fell in between the couch and then was microwave for a little bit. We're both like, yep, that's exactly what it smells like. <laughs> yeah, we got to get find a way to get old Sarah on this show. Not old Sarah. Oh, but old, yeah. I said uh, old Austin. Oella, yes. Yeah. Like, uh, like our old friend Sarah. Dude, she had the best the hobo, tasting notes. The hobo that peeing peed on cement after it rained. Yes. She, it smells like uh, the Kool-Aid man kicked at my door and the door burst from cedar and spilt his juice everywhere. She would be fun to do like a late night tasting, vol- like <laughs> R- I, R-rated episode. I always told her, I was I, I was half serious, but I'm still semi-serious. If I was going to make up wines, I'm just going to send it to her and have her write the back label. I appreciate that though too. When someone makes has a fun back label, like you know, we bring up Kurt Shacklin, like that whole rose we did in episode one, where yeah. it was like this wine is the not the girl you bring home to mom. This is the girl with the pierced nose and the mohawk and the dyed hair from blah 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 blah. And I was like, all right, I get yeah. it. This, this wine is I, this is a punk wine. Have, it's fun to have taste. And it's like yeah, because most of them are generic cinnamon, clove, baking spices. Like all right, cool. Like. Awesome. Like, I, I, and by the way, if I don't smell that, is my nose wrong? Is your bottle wrong? Like, what am I thinking? Versus you have something fun where it's like, it smells like your house exploded while it was filled with grapes and rhubarb and whatever, and the methane cle- cleared out and rotten egg is in there. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, that does have a funky vegetable and fruit smell to it. I mean, there's a, there's when someone comes to me and tells me, like, oh, this wine smells like Led Zeppelin and this wine is like Billy Joel. Like, I'm like, all right, I get it. Like, this wine is. <laughs> That's. I would love that because I really want to smell whatever wine Elton John's would be. <laughs> that's a, you know what? You know what Elton John wine is? Beaujolais Nouveau. Yeah, I mean that's a that's an Elton John. I wine. wonder. I bet you that dude owns a vineyard somewhere too, or you a could, distillery you, in Scotland probably. He is. He's English, right? He's, yeah, English. he's English. Yeah, he's so sir, either, sir Elton John. That's right. He's a sir. Can you only be a sir if you're part of the UK? And knighted by the queen, or can I get knighted by the queen and become a sir? I don't think so. I think you have to be because it's what you have Elton John, you have Ringo Starr, Ian McKellen, isn't he McKellen? Yeah, sir. Yeah, but they're all like British guys. I don't. I don't think you could be a sir and be from. You can only be a lord. I know you can only be a (laughs) lord if you're. (laughs) (laughs) Like I just don't think it's Sir Sir Michael Rowland from Wisconsin. Okay, Michael Rowland. <laughs> Michael Rowland. <laughs> <laughs> no, that I would I would like to have that chat with the Queen one day. I'd be like, so how does these laws work over here? I wonder if the Queen still drinks. I know like not. five glasses a day. She's gotta. Dude, I guarantee that if Winston Churchill drank drank from the day he uh, or from the second he woke to the second he went to bed. The Queen does too. He's got some of the greatest quotes ever. Always. It's, we could have field days with all of his stuff. Alcohol has played such a part of our globe and where we're at today. I mean, across the board. Yeah. Think about how many times that people would have been imbibed on something that affected history. Like one of the biggest ones I always liked is uh, when Napoleon, you know, one of the greatest commanders of all time, biggest generals took over france not just once but twice and moved an army across when he lost the battle of waterloo they said he was off of his game he wasn't tactically smart he was really slow and they found out he had opium the night before and the morning of because he was in pain 
that, that affected the entire outcome of not only just the battle, but the entire war and his life and everything. Like how many times people like Winston Churchill and, you know, the bombers or the Nazis are coming over bombing and he's just pounding drinks like, nope, we are going to war with these guys. We're going to stand tall. We're going to firm. What if he was sober? And he's like, ah, oh, crap. No, let's let's give up. Some people are really good at handling their alcohol. I mean, yeah. And they're super witty about it. Some people aren't. I would. I have never. Here's a crazy thing. And I bet for listeners to think about this, have you ever heard the Queen speak? No. I've never heard her speak either. I've never anywhere seen... I know, I'm sure there's YouTube stuff. I'm just saying I have never, ever seen the Queen speak. Yeah, usually it's just her walking around with some cool, <laughs> cool hat and a little cool dog. And just got that intense stare like, I wish I had a gin right now. Why am I here? <laughs> I wonder. She's got to have at least one a day. I wonder what she is. If she's a wine drinker, a gin drinker. If she's knighting people with a sharp sword. If she's drunk while she's doing that. Gosh. <laughs> All right, that was a fantastic rabbit hole. No, because I'm, I'm curious though. If she's got a, I, I think there's, got, there's something been written up about her drinking like a gin a day or something like that. One? It's got to be a few. I mean, you're the queen. It's not like you have to really go to work. Yeah. You're Just like, wake up. I'll take the green outfit. I'll take the neon green tomorrow. Like the it's big, Easter time. We'll take the yellow. The biggest stress you have is trying to figure out what to wear and what charity function you're going to go to. And <laughs> like, you're the queen. Like, you're not even a government official. Yeah. <laughs> like, back, her, her grandparents were actual officials that were responsible for who to conquer. Yeah. But now... Her, her relatives conquered people. She has all the power... Or believed power with none of the power. She's treated like she literally has all the power in the world and has none. <laughs> but she's seen two world wars. Dude, she's an amazing person. She was in World War II, you know? She was a field, not field medic, but like she was a nurse. And then she stayed in, in London during the bombings. Dude, she's, she's probably one of the coolest people to meet and hang out with. I bet she's got the dirtiest jokes of all time. She is someone I would love to sit down and have a conversation with. Just the hashtag goals is get the queen of England on. Oh my God. Do you think she's ever done a podcast before? Well, she's never talked. We just discussed this. She just gets on and goes, (laughs) hello, hello, let's drink this. You're like, what? Excellent. Should we just email her? Hey, uh, let's do a gin tasting. I imagine it as it takes the email 700 days later to come on because she's one clicking at a time. Yeah, like she's going to come down to Taco Road to fucking do a podcast. <laughs> hey, has she had authentic Mexican tacos before? The taco. So, <laughs> so what are your final thoughts on the one? <laughs> I think that's a great way to go. I mean, it's such a unique Chilean wine. I mean, honestly, 50% of me would guess Chilean from the nose because there's still a little green bell pepper. I might actually think Cab Franc because of the green bell pepper. Um, I think of the blind tasting episode where I went down that rabbit hole and I was like, Cab Franc. If I blind tasted this, I might actually guess a Northern California Cab Franc that has a lot of age. Just I, I could absolutely see that. Yeah, it's got that nose to it. I would not necessarily guess Chilean. I, I might think it at first, but it's just not over the top. I'm really impressed with the wine. Um, it's a wine that I would like to spend eight hours getting to know <laughs> because I feel like it's got such a personality that you can't have a, you can't get to know them in an hour. So this isn't even your A to D thing. This is your, I got to take you on a date. We're going to have a drink. They're going to have some food after dinner, drink after dinner, drink. We're going to get back to my house, speak a little, have a little drink, talk a little bit more, start a fire, see what happens. Yeah. Like that's, that's this Nibble wine. on the neck a little bit. See there, where it goes. Th- this is not, yeah, this is not a wine that you just pound. This is not a wine you want to just drink 
without without thinking. This is a wine I want to have a conversation and break down and enjoy over a period of hours. How many times you and I have done a podcast and we've we've drank two bottles in an hour and a half? Uh, we're not even halfway. Not even halfway. Wait, we got about half left, and because we're enjoying the nose and the intricacies of this wine so much, we're not even drinking it, and that speaks volumes for this wine. And it's something we didn't even touch on, the fact that we're not even drinking this. We're just enjoying it for what it is. Uh, sipping. Yeah, we're literally sipping. This is the first time like going through this whole thing that you're right. We haven't gone through both bottles. Yeah. We have one, one bottle. We have one bottle, and we're not even halfway through it, and we're yeah. an hour and a half into the podcast. Yeah. And that's never happened, but like... It's the first time. Yeah. It's, it's just because, you know what it is? It's like, it's to me, like almost like the Great Wall. Like... You know, you're traveling across this country, kind of enjoying the city, and you run to the Great Wall, and the Great Wall is the nose. Like, you're just marveling at this masterpiece that's just here, and it's the nose for me. And I'm not going past this wall. Like, I just want to keep looking at the wall. In this case, it's the nose. I love this nose. I've never had something like this. I definitely can see where you're coming off with the Cab Franc thing. It has a little bit of that herbaceousness to it. I get a little bit of the that, like, smoky, like, cigar box characteristic. Um, the fruit is there ish like it's so in the it's on the back of the bus basically if you were driving this bus the fruit is hanging out in the back being quiet studying you know not saying anything but it's there decanting it it's amazing how it changed the mouthfeel like it really blows my mind i've never had i've that's the first time i've ever experienced when having a decanter didn't change the nose of the taste it tasted the actual feel yes of the wine me too first time ever and that's something real unique we've both been in the business a long time and it's not like by the way it's not like this decanter was like sitting out with something already in it this is a clean decanter so there's nothing in there but i've absolutely loved this nose i would love to I hope that other people get to experience something as cool as this, where you have a wine where you're just sitting there smelling it just because it's constantly, this is doing more for my brain and nose than it is actually me enjoying a wine to have like a buzz and just tasting something well, well, cool. The fact that this is a, a fairly expensive wine that's very sought after, like to me, this is that, that supermodel that you get a chance to go out with and you realize that it has a great personality. You know who it is? It's a uh, Christy Brinkley. Like she doesn't age at all. And she's like 65. You know, and instead it has depth, it has a personality. You're like, oh my God, I thought it was just going to be some hot girl, but it turns out that I wanted to get to know this way more in depth. And I could, yeah. sp- I could spend hours just talking to this wine. Like, and I wasn't expecting this coming into this. Neither was I. I, I this, was ex- was, this was a great shock for me. I was thinking it was going to be a $200 bottle that was going to be aggressive and one sided. And it's a wine that an hour and a half podcast doesn't really do it justice. No. And I think definitely something, it's definitely, uh, this will be the first time I do this, is I'm going to save this and a while later we'll drink more and on like the Instagram and Facebook we'll put more like little side notes of how drastically it changes so people can kind of be like, hey, listen, the next day it was even better or whatever. And it's amazing. It's 2004. Yeah. I don't even know what I was doing. I think it was a junior in high school in 2004. I mean, I've never had a... A Cloopta before, so this is my first time having this wine. Like I've seen it in magazines, I've seen it written up. I've never had. We gotta try a new one now. I wonder what vintage they're on. Six, fifteen, probably. Mm-hmm. Man, this is. I, I'm. I'm happy about this. This was. This definitely got me intrigued with Chilean wines and what they can do. And clearly, they have all the potential in the world, and it's there. And now it's just a matter of you know trying it and going about that. Awesome, dude. Let's, yeah, wrap, man. let's wrap this up and let's drink the rest of this bottle. Let's do that. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we're so happy that everybody listened to us. We hope you enjoyed everything. Keep drinking. Eat some awesome, fantastic food, especially after our last podcast. Got me really hyped about food. Yep. Yeah.
Thanks, awesome. everybody. Cheers. Love you guys.